Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. With the incredible speeds at which Kenyan and Ethiopian runners are running marathons these days, one of the hottest questions in the running world is, when will the two-hour marathon barrier be broken? Some, including this week's guest, Dr. Philip Maffetone, believe that it should have already happened. Dr. Maffetone is a longtime physiotherapist who's worked with some of the best endurance athletes in history, including six-time Ironman triathlon world champion Mark Allen and nine-time New York City marathon winner Greta Weitz. In his new book, 159, The Sub-Two-Hour Marathon, Dr. Mavitone outlines how he thinks that the two-hour barrier will be broken, from training to nutrition to shoes and more. A few of the key points we discussed included the book 159 and why Dr. Mavitone decided to write it, the idea of maximum aerobic heart rate and why he thinks this concept as well as heart rate training in general are the keys to improvement in the marathon, Dr. Mavitone's idea about the role barefoot running will take in the Sub-2 quest and how to go about transitioning to that style of running, and the somewhat unique idea of spread out, slow weights, strength training sessions. As usual, any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash runninginterviews slash mavitone-159. I'm your host, Lucas Felton, and thanks for listening. So, Dr. Mavitone, good morning. Thanks so much for being on our show again. Can you start out by telling those of us who haven't seen your uh, previous interview with us about uh, yourself and how you came to be involved in the sport? Well, I, I got involved in the sport in 1977 when I, when I first got into practice. Um, I was um, a biomechanics person, a kinesiologist who would um, uh, look at posture and especially gait and of course, that was um, uh, a great thing thing for athletes to um, look at. So they were they were interested in getting their gates better because, um, as we all know, a better gait is going to make you a better runner because you're more economical. And um, I realized that uh, treating athletes, uh, treating their injuries, which is in most cases the 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 reason they come to see. A, a, a doctor or any therapist um, was getting a little frustrating. They they would come in, I would treat them. Fortunately, I was able to correct a lot of injuries, but they would then go out and train in a certain way that would cause the injuries to recur. They'd come back and see me. I'd fix the injury. They'd go out and train, and you know that vicious cycle was not. Um, not something I really wanted to be involved with. I, I, I said these are secondary problems due to lifestyle factors, in particular training, sometimes diet, sometimes other stresses, and more often than not a combination of things. Um, and so I realized that uh, I needed to be involved in the training process uh, if I was going to truly be holistic, which was really my... my um, my approach, and so I, I, I had to be a coach as well as a therapist, and 
um, from that point on was always uh, was always both because it was just it, it was the only way to do it successfully. Certainly seems like it. Um, I've heard that um, that description of that cycle from a few other people as well. Who were some of your early influences in both practice and in coaching? Um, I think um, Arthur Lydiard. I had read uh, some of his material early on. I was. Um, um, I don't. I don't know what influenced me from a standpoint of um, this so-called slow training, but it, it was obvious to me that endurance. You know, it's it's basic exercise physiology. So I had that under my belt, and it, it was not a complicated thing to to have a. Uh, a patient who was a 10k runner uh, and and understand that the aerobic system was uh, the most important part of training for that runner or a marathoner or, or any kind of endurance athletes and in the in the early years the the runners uh, I, I worked at my clinic was just north of New York City so I you know it was the the sort of the peak of the running boom or the running boom had 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 taken place and there were a lot of people getting into running and a lot of people of course getting hurt um, but I I was um, helping this one marathoner um, and I said you've got to you've got to you know you've got to slow down your training because you're you're injuring your your low back and part of the problem is that the aerobic muscles are not getting a chance to develop and that's what supports your back all day and um, and he said oh you you must be familiar with Arthur Lydiard and and I wasn't and I, I looked him up and found some materials and um, you know read about his approach which was to build the the aerobic system and it was interesting because years later he ended up in my clinic as a patient huh. and it was, a, it was a lot of fun um, working with him but I think he was a, an influence I think the, you know, the bigger influence was exercise physiology, the the foundation of of um, sports medicine. Really, that was um, that was a very important thing. And then uh, observing the patients who would come in and the kinds of problems they would have, and uh, comparing that with training, it became obvious that um, training the aerobic system was very important. And I didn't see a lot of um, athletes, I didn't see a lot of runners who were already doing things really well. Some, some did, did their training better and ate better um, than others, but um, you know, you always learn from patients in, in, in one way or, or the other. Um, but it was, I, I think when I first saw Greta White's, um, it it really hit me that some some athletes have a, a a wonderful natural approach. They just let their brain train their body, and Greta seemed to be uh, much more like that. And I remember putting a heart monitor on her um, for the first time. And back then, we didn't have wireless heart monitors. We had these big, obnoxious um, monitors that you know there were two straps one went over the shoulder and one around the 
the chest and you had to kind of look down your shirt to see what the heart rate was and um, but uh, I said just just run your normal training pace what you typically run and I had calculated what her heart rate should be to, to best train the aerobic system and um, I'm running around the track with her and you know she said yeah this is this is about my pace and we run a mile or two and it ended up um, being exactly what I had calculated it, it should be so I think some some athletes just intuitively can use their brain um, use their instincts to do the right thing on any given day which I think is what is the ideal approach is you know every day is different and what does your body want to do today well your brain knows the answer to that and if you can just let your brain go and and if you can follow your instincts you're going to be much better off certainly yeah that's an interesting perspective that uh i hadn't really read about a lot before i read your book just these last couple of days so why did you decide to write this book can you first of all can you summarize it a bit for us and then talk about why you wanted to write it well the book essentially goes through the reasons why we're we're right on the doorstep of a 159 marathon and if it's 159 59 so be it if it's 159 10 uh, if it's in Boston or Berlin uh, whatever whatever the case um, you know it's a it's a uh, it, it's going to transcend sport, and it's really uh, when you go back and read about the the environment around the time before the time and around the time when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. It's very similar. There are there are many many. I mean, everybody has their opinion, uh, and it's usually yes we can break two hours no we can't break two hours right now it's going to take a long time uh, and that was the same situation in um, in Europe and in the sporting world in general um, there were there were people uh, there were scientists um, and coaches and and runners who were saying uh, you know the the human body physiologically can't run faster than four minutes is just impossible and they're saying the same exact thing now the human body can't run faster than a two-hour marathon it's you know we'll get closer and closer and so you know I I, I looked at all the factors um, that are involved in in running a marathon and we can kind of sum them all up and say well it's all about running economy and so, therefore, the book is really about running economy. But I define running economy in the broadest sense. So I include not just the feet and the shoes, if shoes are worn, not just the gait, but food, energy, um, heart rate, um, many, many factors that influence running economy, either directly or indirectly. Um, <clears throat> so basically what I did was I said, well, you know, wearing lighter shoes can uh, reduce uh, a marathon time by, you know, 45 seconds and uh, running at a, you know, all these factors can reduce uh, a marathon time by X number of seconds, or in some case minutes. And if you put them all together, you end up 
not with 159.59, but you really end up with a, a, a marathon finish in the ideal situation 10 minutes or so faster. You know, and I calculated things and came up with <clears throat> um, one. 149 or something and I'm not the only one there's a guy from the Mayo Clinic named Michael Joyner who's written um, about the sub two-hour marathon in the medical journals and he's written some very very good articles and he's made his own calculations and his his calculations were also um, you know down around a 150 marathon as you know we're, we're capable of seeing that now and so when we talk about 159, it's actually a somewhat conservative thing. So that's that's why I wrote the book because there's there's logic here, and we should really talk about logic. There's a lot of emotion when it comes to, you know, just asking someone, some some famous marathoner or some famous coach or or the the man and the woman in a you know middle of the pack or end of the pack runner. Can someone run 159? It's usually an emotional response, and um, um, emotion is nice in sports, but we also have to use logic and physiology. Absolutely. So, one I'd like to go through some of those topics that you talk about in the book. Um, first one I'd like to start with is I'm intrigued by your idea of running for uh, for time instead of distance. Um, I do that myself, and I'm something of an anomaly among the runners that I know. Why, why do you advocate time versus distance? I, I think the body relates to it better. Uh, we're, you know, we're, all, we're all running races based on, on time. Yeah, there's a distance there, but the, there's a time factor. And also the time factor can be translated into training and in a, in a very um, physiological way, in a very concrete way, we can say, well, if we're... If we're wanting to run a 159 marathon, what kind of time do we have to run in training at a certain heart rate? And we can come up with all those numbers, um, and they're all time-based, and, and it's just, it's a much more logical approach. And why heart rate so much over, say, traditional pace and, you know, pace over time? Well, the, the pacing is is um, is again is not a um, it's not a quality measurement. Um, heart rate is is really a biofeedback consideration. The 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 one fifty nine marathon is going to be an aerobic event as fast as it might be. It's still going to be an aerobic event. So we need to take the training component of what we want to do in racing and, and have some logic to it. And so we can say, well, if we're going to run a 159 marathon, we'll need to be able to run um, a 450 or a 455 pace at an aerobic heart rate, such as a 155 heart rate. So it's a submax race, and so we should use a submax uh, time in order to relate to what we're doing on the race course. I mean, we can't, you know, we can't, especially in the marathon, uh, you know, a healthy marathoner is not going to run more than uh, a couple of marathons a year. And so we have to make every race count. It's a very difficult thing. And so we need something in training, even every day, that we can measure time-wise 
to tell us if we're really getting faster at the same submax level. That's really the, the key to it. And can you explain that idea of maximum aerobic heart rate? Because it comes up quite often in the book. It's kind of the basis of, of the training you advocate. Yeah, and when you look at various distances, now let, let, let's look at it from a standpoint of um, VO2 max. VO2 max is, is still the, you know, the hot thing out there. Everybody wants to know what their VO2 max is. Everybody wants to read about the VO2 max levels of professional, you know, the elite athletes. And it's really kind of a meaningless thing. We're not, we're not employing VO2 max in our marathon running. Uh, once we, once we get to 10k and above, we're racing at a sub VO2 max level. So we want to, we want to be able to assess the sub max heart rate. And sure, you in order to get sub max heart rate, you need to know what the max is. But the sub max assessment is is very very important. So what I call the maximum aerobic heart rate is some um, some heart rate. And again, we use heart rate because it's the it's the best, most accurate uh, way to do it. We we we've long thrown out the idea that well, if you can run and carry on a conversation and you're aerobic that doesn't hold any water at all some of us can run at a very high heart rate and carry on a conversation just fine um, especially people who were former sprinters and so it, it just it is it, you know we need something more scientific so what i was doing early on when i was working with runners was coming up with a sub max heart rate that enable them to uh, uh, build their aerobic system and we were able to measure that they could actually get faster at the same submax heart rate and really what it was is that they were improving their running economy so they were able to run from point A to point B at the same heart rate at a faster pace if their running economy improved traditionally that that measurement of running economy is done by measuring oxygen so you need a certain amount of oxygen to go from point A to point B. Well, that's not only impractical to talk about, but for most athletes, it's impractical to to go have your your oxygen uptake measured on a regular basis. And most elite athletes don't do that, um, despite what what uh, everybody thinks. So I was coming up with these max aerobic heart rates kind of manually and uh, as I started lecturing more and more people started asking me well how can I come up with this max this uh, max aerobic heart rate without uh, you know flying to New York to see you or um, is there somebody else that can do that and, and it kind of forced me to come up with a formula which was a very individual formula where people could plug in their health and fitness levels and come up with a max uh, a max aerobic heart rate that was often within one or two beats of what I was coming up with the, the long way, uh, assessing a, an athlete on the track and measuring this and measuring that. So <clears throat> that submax heart rate um, is really the, you know, it's the highest heart rate an athlete can train at and still build the aerobic system uh, quite well. And if you use that as a guide, if you're 
training properly, then you should get faster at the same heart rate. And if you're not, then there's something wrong. If you're getting slower at the same heart rate, then you've got something serious wrong. And that, that could be um, training. You could have picked the wrong submax heart rate or the, the, the wrong uh, max aerobic heart rate. Uh, people want to train at a higher heart rate. So it's hard to convince them that they need to be honest when they're figuring out the formula. Um, it could be a, you know, it could be a dietary thing. It could be a stress thing. It could be um, more often than not a combination of things. So that sounds pretty logical. So why do you think it is that most, at least top-level runners, don't train based on heart rate? And I could be off on that, but it doesn't seem like it based on things I read. Yeah, I think I think a few years ago that would have been correct. But I think. Um, with the advent of wireless heart monitors, which was actually way back in the early to mid, um, early to mid 80s, um, uh, you know, heart rate training was basically unheard of then. And so when I lectured about it or when I wrote about it, it was very strange for, for a runner to, to read that you're going to train at a certain heart rate. And then as heart monitors became popular, people started getting them and wearing them, but I was finding out that they were really just kind of playing a game with it. You know, let's see how high we can get our heart rate on this hill. Um, and um, today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that, that some athletes um, don't use heart monitors because they either don't know what to do with them or they come from, uh, you know, a, a part of the world where you know, you, you often can't even afford to buy shoes, so buying a heart monitor is not something you're going to do. Okay. And I'd like to go back to that, um, the running economy part. Uh, as you mentioned before, the, the book is mostly about running economy, and you were talking about that's pretty much where you can go the same distance at a faster pace because you're at the same effort because you're Essentially, I guess your body works better. How it, so? Is that how you define running? Economy? Yeah, you're you're more efficient. It's just like your car. You know, if you if you have a car that gets thirty miles to the gallon, you're more economical than uh, your friend who has a car that only gets twenty miles per gallon. Um, in the body, um, you're using less oxygen to get from point A to point B when you're more economical or you can flip that around and say well I can go from point A to point B with the same oxygen but now I'm able to go faster um, and you could look at oxygen but it's just not you know that's the traditional measurement but it's it's not practical what's really happening is that you're burning more body fat as an energy source and the human body um, mostly burns sugar and fat and, you know, we're like a high-performance race car. We have a mix of fuels that um, we, we use. And if that mix of fuels is pushed so that we're burning more fat and less sugar, we're going to have more endurance. And if we develop a better economy and build our endurance, then we go faster at the same heart rate same submax heart rate and and when you start measuring everything what one of the things you see is that we're burning more body fat so a lot of the other definitions of running economy that i've read are not are not purely physiological a lot of them are mechanical as well is that something you found or not really 
Oh, sure. There's a mechanical component, and, and that's you know that's sort of the the academic definition of of body economy of running economy. Um, but like I said earlier, I I I look at the the most broad definition of running economy because if we improve our fat burning and that may not be a traditional definition of running economy but if we improve our fat burning we're going to have more energy and if we have more energy then obviously we're going to be able to run faster and so um, running running economy um, you know when we look at the academic definitions we see the the mechanical components how how are we more mechanically efficient you know, well, if we if we have a smooth gait, we're more economical. But how do we get that smooth gait? It comes from uh, having better aerobic muscle fibers. It comes from having uh, aerobic muscle fibers that have more energy, which is which is where fat comes in. Um, it comes from having a muscle balance as opposed to muscle imbalance. So. Um, if we have muscle imbalance, our economy is going to be trashed very quickly. And muscle imbalance is really the foundation of most running injuries. So it all kind of goes together. You know, uh, an athlete who's frequently injured is just never going to have good running economy because there's always muscle imbalance and it affects gait. And you can see it. Um, you, you look at the the leaders in a, a marathon at, at uh, 15 or 20 miles and you, you see these amazing gates that um, you know appear flawless to the untrained eye but you can you can see slight deviations in the gate um, uh, even even with the lead pack uh, you go back of the pack um, just a, a minute or, or so and and you're going to see gates that are um, not quite as good, and that's a that's really the best example of running economy, um, giving an athlete more speed at the same energy level or oxygen level, however you want to relate to it. But but the the better the better gates um, are going to be found in the the lead the leaders in the race. And there's there are exceptions. There are people who evolved as elite athletes and never had a great gait um, my my comment to that is imagine how how much greater they could have been if their gait was improved or corrected or, or whatever mm -hmm. makes perfect sense so I'd like to talk a little uh, a couple training specifics um, in your training schedules chapter the uh, there's one kind of sample week, but as you said, the uh, the individual varieties and people make trying to make a a set schedule that's pretty much impossible and very impractical. But the system that you talk about and the way you talk about doing it is is fairly different from what a lot of the top African athletes do, who are the top marathon runners in the world. I've um, done some reading about it, and there does seem to be some kind of higher lactic acid work early in their cycle and their workouts seem to be a lot a lot of their workouts seem to be at a much higher heart rate than what you prescribe yes and no um the the kenyans uh, uh you know based on uh the reporting from from various um 
authors and, and even some of the Kenyans themselves in interviews um, will will often have slow days, what they what they term slow days, and that might be an eight-minute pace or an 8.30 pace. Um, and then they certainly have their days when they're, they're going much, much faster. But again, these, these runners are able to run, um, I'm going to guess, 5.10 pace, 5.15 pace, 5-minute pace at their sub-max um, level at what I would call the maximum aerobic pace level. So at a 155 heart rate, um, they may be able to run five-minute pace. Um, so when they go eight-minute pace, it's, it's not even a jog for them. So it's all, it's all quite relative. Um, and people reading um, about them, you know, running at a 7.30 pace and somebody who, you know, can't even race at a 7.30 pace, when they read that, it, you know, they, they're not quite sure how to, how to relate to it. Um, but heart rate is really a common denominator. So at 155 heart rate, if you can run a 510 pace um, and somebody else at 155 heart rate can run a nine-minute pace, you're still at the same 155 heart rate. The difference is body economy. Hmm. It's an, yeah, it just seemed like a, uh, it just seemed a little different. And I guess without seeing the, uh, without seeing heart rate data from some of the workouts that you hear about, like, like a 40 kilometer run pretty much at marathon effort at 8,000 feet, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to put it in perspective, as you said. It is. And, and, you know, I, I, I believe that we, we would have seen a sub two hour marathon um, already had some of the East Africans trained differently, uh, eaten differently, um, uh, had a different lifestyle. You know, a lot of them, when they make it, um, they, they no longer spend as much time at altitude. They no longer spend as much time in the, the, the bright sunlight that at altitude gives you a lot of vitamin D. They, they eat um, worse on the road. Um, there are various stresses. I mean, there are a lot of factors. Um, and so I, I think, you know, the, sure, the Kenyans are the best in the world, world statistically at the moment. But when you really look at the history of running, there have been many countries that have taken turns at being the best in the world. So, um, you know, the Kenyans are there now, and we think they're going to be there forever. They're not. And, um, um, you know, had, they've certainly got the talent, and it's certainly um, for various reasons, such as living, uh, being born at altitude and living at altitude and growing up barefoot. Um, those, are, those are very important ones. The least uh, of the benefits are genetic, in, in my mind, and I think most, most scientists would say the same thing. The, the genes are not not the primary factor. So I think if they were if they were training more effectively and eating better and um, that sort of thing, we would be long past the 159 marathon. We might even be talking about, you know, can 150 be broken? Hmm. Well, it's certainly interesting to think about. Um, I'd like to move on to the, uh, you, were, you mentioned one time a little while ago and one time just now about um, 
about the barefoot aspect, and that's obviously quite the uh, the buzz topic in the running community ever since Born to Run came out about 10 years ago now. Can you explain your philosophy on, on the barefoot part of it? Well, it's a physiological issue. Um, we're most efficient from an economy standpoint. We're most efficient when we don't have extra weight on our feet and we don't have anything on our feet that interferes with the normal biomechanics of the feet. And, you know, I'm talking about someone who grows up spending a lot of time being barefoot. So the body and the brain, the brain is very much involved in development, development in, in early childhood. Um, but someone who grows up where they're, they're barefoot a lot of the time, or in the case of the East Africans, all the time, and the, the muscle, bone, ligament, tendon development, the, the brain development, which is where um, the, the first inkling of muscle contraction really occurs in the brain. It's the motor cortex getting ready to send a message to every muscle fiber uh, to contract uh, in that particular muscle. And, um, you know, that, that efficiency, that um, developmental efficiency, that, that economy um, makes for your better runners later on because the gait is so efficient and you're able to perform uh, more work with less effort. Um, so when you start, and it's interesting that, you know, many of the East Africans um, are barefoot, they race barefoot up until a certain point, and then the ones that are good, they may win a race, and then they may get their first pair of shoes as, as, as a, a prize in that race, and it's really the first time they wear shoes. Um, but you can't, um, you know, there, there's the issue of having a shoe contract, and you're not going to, you're not going to have, um, until somebody does it, you're not going to have a runner say, well, I'm going to forego my contract and I'm going to race barefoot. And the fact is, they're going to race better if they're used to running barefoot, with which most East, East Africans and many others are. Um, and they'd be way ahead of the game financially because, you know, the person who breaks two minutes in the marathon is going to be more than a great runner. Um, you know he's going to be he's going to be a king. Uh, people are going to ask him about you know his his opinions on politics and philosophy. I mean it's just the way um, our society treats sports heroes, and he will be um, a sports hero just like Roger Bannister was the sports hero of of his decade, and even today. You know Roger Bannister's name is is big in sport, people who know sports at least, but the fact is Roger held the mile record for the shortest time of any, of any miler ever. Um, and so, but he was the first one and it, it's, you know, it's the first one who's always remembered. So um, that's, you know, that's, that's what's going to happen and if it's done without shoes, it'll do a lot more for the running community than um, Chris McDougall did with his with his great book. Um, you know, there's no. I, I don't think there's a lot. 
there's a lot of emotion when you start talking about shoes and no shoes and minimalism. It's really a very silly uh, argument, and I don't, I don't want to participate in any kind of argument or any kind of emotional debate because it's really kind of stupid. But that's, you know, I think uh, the, the shoe companies maybe instigate some of that because it gets people talking about shoes. But strictly from a weight standpoint, if you put weight on the feet, it's going to slow your 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 economy. Your it's going to impair your running economy. Period. There's no question about that. So um, obviously, the lightest shoes would be the best for for running a marathon. Um, and then if you go and get rid of the shoes altogether, and you're able to run barefoot, which many can, then your efficiency is going to be that much better. So is there any danger to, so like a lot of the top marathons in the world and likely the one of the ones where likely the two-hour barrier will be broken for the first time, those are all on, on hard surfaces. Is there any kind of risk to the body or the bones for the, from running at a 435-mile pace for two hours on with bare feet on a, on a hard asphalt surface? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think that's, that, that it's ever been shown to be a problem. Um, uh, blacktop and, and that type of material is not as hard as people think it is. Um, concrete is hard. You know, if you, if you look at a road that's blacktopped and it, it comes upon a, um, an overpass, they can't use blacktop on an overpass because blacktop is too soft, so they use concrete. Um, but, you know, we, we already have... Uh, the history of a of a um, an Olympic marathon winner in Rome, uh, the Ethiopian Bikila went. You know, he he was running on cobblestones. I think when you're a barefoot runner, and I've run barefoot a lot, your your time on the ground, which is really one of the ways that that people can run faster when they're trained barefoot, is the time on the ground is less and. We slow down when our foot is on the ground, and when we're in the air, we don't slow down. So if you, if you, if you look at just, just the running from that standpoint, you can see how running economy can improve when you're when you're barefoot. Um, so I don't think the stress of, uh, you know, I think what you're asking is about impact force. You know, yes. the stress of of hitting the ground. There's something very, very important, um, and and the difference between wearing shoes and not wearing shoes, and it's that the body can take the impact force of hitting the ground. This is, this is, uh, you know, I've been studying human physiology um, for over forty years, and and this is one of the most amazing uh, aspects of of body function. It's one of the most amazing bits of physiology. It's just mind-boggling. It's, it's just, you know, what, what the body does is takes that impact force from hitting the ground and it converts that energy and it, it gives it to the muscles and we now have an extra source of energy. You know, we're, we're already burning fat and burning sugar to power the muscles, but now what the tendons do, and not just the Achilles, but all the tendons and the 
the leg and especially in the foot, the tendons take the impact energy, they store it temporarily, and then they convert it into mechanical energy. So the muscles actually have extra energy than they would have had had they only used fat and sugar. And that's an amazing, it's just an amazing thing. Um, when you put on a shoe, you impair that mechanism a certain amount. The bigger the shoe, the thicker the shoe, um, the less your brain is aware of uh, exactly what's going on. So the impact energy now, much of it is not used, uh, is not recycled, if you will, into energy. And that's, that's why there are so many injuries, because a lot of that energy um, generates heat, and that heat is not dissipated. And it, you know, it adds stress to the muscles, the joints, the ligaments, the tendons, um, all the way, actually all the way up into the body. So um, that's one of the big differences between being barefoot or, or certainly having a very thin, very light shoe and, and wearing a thicker shoe or a heavier shoe. Yeah, I work, I, uh, I manage a, a shoe store, a running shoe store as my day job and I've, I've answered questions like this for I, I can't tell you how many people and it's always uh, it's always a balance between what can you do and what do you what do you want to do and what are you prepared what, what is your body prepared to do yeah speaking of that can you explain the uh, it, the 10 barefoot steps that you mentioned in that chapter yeah I, I you know in high school and college I, I ran barefoot competitively but um, you know when I got into practice, I realized that many of the the runners I was seeing were having uh, injuries that were due to primary problems in the feet. So a knee problem, very very common. Um, uh, you know why do why do runners get knee problems? Well, in most cases, uh, it's because of some imbalance in the foot, and you disturb your your foundation, it's like a building foundation that starts crumbling and you get cracks uh, higher up in the house. Um, same thing in the body, your foot stability is lost and now uh, the, the knee starts hurting, the hip, the low back starts hurting, even up into the shoulder and the neck you can have problems. And, and, and the first time I, I read, or the, the source that I first read about shoes impairing muscle function in the foot were studies from the 1950s. So there's nothing new there. They, they did EMG studies where they were able to measure the, the muscle contraction and showed that when you put on a shoe, um, any shoe, you, you, know, you lose function. And we, we were able to measure that. I was able to measure that in practice as well. So then um, what happens to the athlete with the knee problem or the back problem or just you know somebody with poor running economy how do we rehabilitate them how do we get these muscles working again and the, the very best thing to do is just to have the athlete take off his or her shoe, shoes and um, move around walk around doesn't have to run uh, you don't you don't have to become a barefoot runner, but you have to spend a lot more time walking around being weight-bearing in your bare feet because that's the stimulus to improve muscle function, especially in these little tiny muscles in the feet. They're, they're incredibly important. And so what I found myself doing was 
giving recommendations to athletes to take off their shoes. And I found that some of them had become addicted to their shoes. They would get up in the morning and they'd have their shoes by their bedside and they'd put them on. And they wouldn't take them off until they were getting into bed that night. So we had to actually come up with a plan to wean them off uh, their shoes and gradually get the muscles working better. Otherwise, um, just going from always wearing shoes to being barefoot a lot was too much. And as often happens, people can get hurt that way. So uh, I came up with these 10 steps in the book uh, where people slowly wean into that process of spending more time barefoot in a healthy way so that they don't traumatize their foot. You know, a lot of people can't, they can't function without their shoes. You know, if you, if you spend a lot of time in a wheelchair, the same thing would happen. You would start losing muscle function. You wouldn't be able to walk very well after a week of that or even less. It's been shown in studies that um, after a day or two of bed rest, um, the muscles start to atrophy. And even before that, the, the connection between the brain and the muscle fibers is, is turned off. Your body is very efficient. And, and if, if, if you don't need something, if you don't need to maintain muscle function, and if you're lying in bed all day, you don't need to maintain muscle function, then your brain turns that off. And when you finally, after a week, get up, you're going to realize how significant that is because you're not going to be able to walk. So it's the same thing with the feet and shoes, and you sometimes have to wean people into being um, barefoot and restoring muscle function. It's really, it's really a, a rehabilitation of the feet. And then once you rehabilitate the feet, now you can put on a good pair of running shoes, and, and a good pair of running shoes, for me, is something that's not over-supported because if your feet are working fine, you don't need support. You have support. They're called muscles. Hmm. Um, and, and then a th so a thin pair without, without the support. And, and now with your feet rehabilitated, you're going to be able to function better in those shoes, say in training or in a race. And at the same time, you're not going to continually impair your feet because you're going to be spending more time um, or as much time as possible out of your shoes. When you're home, you're not going to have shoes on. When you're at work, if that's possible, to go barefoot, either nothing on your feet or just socks, uh, you know, you do that. Um, many people can't take their shoes off at work, so I recommend they, they come home and, and never wear their shoes in the home, which is a good habit anyway because you pick up all kinds of toxins in the course of, of the day when you're walking around. But um, if you don't have enough barefoot time, then go for a barefoot walk. Uh, spend Just spend enough time so that you can exercise your muscles. People spend so much time training their muscles and they don't realize that the feet, uh, when you're in shoes, uh, the, the need training too. The shoes uh, reduce the muscle contraction so that that, that aspect of the body needs uh, as much help as any other part. Speaking of which, um Tell us about your views on on strength training for runners because it's like like many other things it's it's a uh, it's a hotly discussed topic among the entire running world with all kinds of views 
from extreme to extreme, from nothing to to crazy weight weightlifting schedules and things like that. How, yeah. how do you address this? Well, <laughs> I was going to say I, I address it the the proper way. You know, if you if you look at the the big picture, uh, the answer is is obvious. Uh, on the one extreme, you, you can't just lift weights because you're going to bulk up. And if you weigh more, you mess up your running economy. You obviously can't run as fast, given everything is the same, if you're, if you're a pound heavier. And certainly if you're 5 pounds or 10 pounds heavier, which is not difficult to add uh, that weight if you're, if you're doing traditional weightlifting, um, you're, you're going to be a slower runner. Um, running is not about muscle strength, pure muscle strength, endurance running. Um, track and field is, you know, 5K runners. There's a lot of um, power, muscle power that's involved with that. In a marathon, there's a whole lot less. So, um, yeah, we need to have strong um, muscles to run a, a good marathon, but we can't obtain that strength by bulking up. So the next question is, can we obtain that strength without bulking up? And uh, the answer is, of course. Uh, and we all know, if we think about it, that there's always some skinny guy who's very strong. And there's often a skinny guy who's stronger than the big bulky guy. Um, and and how, how does that happen? Well, muscle strength comes from the brain. How many muscle fibers in a muscle does the brain contract to lift a weight? Um, and you could literally contract more fibers in a muscle that's thin than a bulky uh, weightlifter can contract uh, lifting the same way. And that, that would make you, the skinny, uh, you know, the smaller muscle person, um, more, ha have more strength. So you want to do your strength training in such a way that enlists more muscle fiber contractions by the brain without bulking up. And one of the ways you do that is you don't train to fatigue. The traditional approach is you go to the gym, you lift um, um, you know, a certain amount of, of weight, um, you go 10, 12, 14, 16 reps, whatever, you, you know, the trainer, if you have one, says, come on, one more, you could do one more, oh good, let's just try one more, you know, and then, you know, you kind of, you, you go to fatigue, and going to fatigue is a problem, um, it's a big stress, it encourages uh, the muscle to bulk up, and you gain weight, and you get stronger, um, although not necessarily, because when you fatigue a muscle, it actually weakens it. So you train yourself to weakness. Um, there's a whole bunch of other problems associated with that. Um, stress hormones are produced, and that impairs endurance. So um, what I've developed is a system where you can train your brain to contract more fibers in a muscle, no matter how big or small it is. And you do that by not lifting to fatigue and you can go to the gym and do that you lift about 80 percent of your max what you can lift 
uh, one time. So if you can lift 100 pounds one time, then um, you want to go about 80, to 80 pounds and you want to lift that 80 pounds or push whatever, whatever muscles we're talking about. Um, you want to uh, do that five or six times and then that will not fatigue you. And you'll know because when you're done the workout, you're not going to be sore. The next morning, you're not going to be sore. In fact, you'll be able to do a weight workout every day because you're recovering from one day to the, to the next, which when you, when you lift to fatigue, the traditional way, you have to wait 48 hours. That's sort of the, the typical recommendation, wait 48 hours. Well, in fact, now they're finding out that it takes more than 48 hours to recover. So you're always in a state of recovering. Um, that's no way for an endurance athlete to be because it, it has a, a negative impact on endurance. So, and, and then to take it a step further, I, I rec you know, a lot of people that I saw, I saw a lot of elite athletes, but the majority of athletes I saw in my clinic were amateur athletes. They had a, a full-time job, a family, um, all kinds of other obligations. So their schedules were, were not wide open, like an elite athlete who gets paid to be a runner. Um, so the question is, well, where are we going to squeeze strength training in, in your workout? You know, you work from 9 to 5, you have an hour commute, um, you have a family, you've got to take care of your home, you've got social obligations. You know, where, where in the world are you going to put that without creating more stress, which which is a big problem for, for athletes. Um, and what I came up with was something called slow weights. And basically it's just, here's a barbell, you've got the amount of weight uh, that's right for you on it. The barbell's sitting there in the corner and when you've got a, a, a spare minute, you know, when you're, when you're doing emails, when you're waiting for a phone call, uh, when you're boiling some eggs and you're standing there, um, take a, a minute or less, go over there, lift that barbell over your head, you know, do six reps uh, and put it down. And maybe an hour later, you're in the same situation, you do the same thing. And maybe you do that two, three, four times a day. You don't even... You know, you, you don't have to make time to do that. The time is already there. You've got some idle time. And in the course of a week, if you do it five days a week or six days a week or four days or seven days, you're going to train your brain to enlist a lot more muscle fibers and you're going to get stronger. And it's a very, very um, simple routine, very powerful routine. If you look at the Kenyans um, and the East Africans in general, they are smaller in statue with with few exceptions um they have skinny legs you know they're they don't look like they have any muscle but they're actually very strong and the 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 way that anybody can can evaluate their strength as a as a marathon or as any any endurance runner is to see how high you can jump it's, it's almost frightening to see how high some of the track and field runners could jump. Um, you know, some of them can jump well over two feet. Um, but if you, if you stand at the wall and just flat-footed, you reach up, mark a point, 
you obviously need a high wall. Uh, mark a point and then, you know, crouch down and jump as high as you can and do that three times. You should be, uh, you know, you should be able to jump more than 15 or 18 inches um, as a as a, an endurance runner. And many, many people can't run, can't jump more than 8 or 10 or 12 inches. And that's because of a lack of strength. That's a very interesting way of doing it. Um, I, I suppose I've done something like that before, and you know, when I was when I was in high school and things, without really knowing what I was doing. Yeah. It's good to know I was actually doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's amazing, uh, and I won't get into the educational um, approach we have here, but uh, you know, we do so many things without knowing why. But uh, you know, we had. I remember in high school we had this elaborate system for measuring jump height people you know would would jump and try and reach these blocks and they'd spin around and you try and get to the next one which was a little higher and um but the you know in general the good sprinters um have great jumping incredible jumping ability and you'll see um you'll see a lot of the sprinters uh today who are um at the starting line they're not on their blocks yet they're kind of warming up they'll often just start jumping and they'll just, it's amazing how high they can get. Um, and what happens is, you know, some of those short distance, those sprinters will move up to the 5K and then they'll move up to the 10K. And as they move up to the half marathon and the marathon, they're doing less sprinting and they often leave their strength, that jumping ability strength, behind and now they don't jump as well because they've you know they've not they've not performed those activities that maintain the strength so they literally lose it and um uh, a, a marathoner who can get strength back um will improve running economy significantly it certainly seems like it although it although counter to a lot of people's opinions um I just have one more thing I want to ask you, Dr. Maffetone, because I'm sure you have a busy day ahead of you. Um, what are some uh, some other books you might recommend for runners for that that have, in your opinion, kind of some more correct ideas in them? Uh, good question. I, I have no doubt that there are some good books out there, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> I okay. spend I spend my and this is what I really recommend. I I recommend. Um, reading some of the basic physiology textbooks. And, and you can get, uh, you know, an undergrad physiology, sports medicine, uh, sports, uh, you know, exercise physiology text that covers the basics. I think, um, you know, and, and when you do that, you'll read about the aerobic system. You know, I... I, I often have, when, I, when I'm out there lecturing, I'll often have people come up to me and say, you know, I never heard of the aerobic system. Well, it's something you would learn in, in undergraduate exercise physiology. It's really a basic foundation of understanding sports. Um, so that's a great place to start. And then with that information, um, and of course, a lot of these are available online. Uh, with that information, and, and you know, you may need a, um, a dictionary 
to look up some of the big words that are thrown around. <laughs> um, but they shouldn't, they shouldn't scare you off. They're, they're just words with a lot of letters. Um, you can then read any book or any article and understand it better and also see the, the pitfalls in some of the, the, the ideas that are out there that just don't have a good physiological foundation. Um, I, think, I think the more you read, the better. Um, and and I, I follow that advice, but my, my reading is, um, you know, I keep up with the, the, the research that's always coming out. There are dozens and dozens of um, journals out there that are just full of great information, but someone who is not um, schooled in that um, basic information can, can get a textbook um, and get that foundation quite easily. Well, it seems like a good idea, for, certainly to be at least somewhat first in the uh, in the physiology of what you're doing. Yeah, I think that that's you know then then the emotion doesn't come in. There's there, you know I I just refuse to get involved in the emotional debate of uh, the shoes like we talked about, but the you know the 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 endurance athletes you know can we do short high intensity training is that better um is endurance running harmful uh you know all these silly debates that go on come on let's use some some logic and some science um and if we do uh there's very little really to debate there's nothing to debate there's a a much better understanding well certainly seems like it certainly could be well, anyway, thank you very much, Dr. Mapitone. I really appreciate your time today. Thank I'm you. I'm sure everybody you. else will as well. Um, I will. Uh, we'll have a link to your uh, to your book on this uh, on the on the page when it comes out. And uh, I hope everybody gets to uh, gets a chance to read the book because it was a, it was a very interesting read and there was a lot of interesting ideas in it. Thanks, Lucas. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.